Welcome to the Infernal Mafia. I'm Sarah, and today I have Brittany from Bell Bell Bella on the show. Hello. Hello. So here is a quick intro for Brittany, and Kayla's going to do the second half of this interview. She had some technical difficulties this morning, so she'll be on later to talk to you, Brittany. But Brittany lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and originally started her blog to be a resource for young professional women of color navigating their way through the preconceived notions of beauty in our society. Brittany is all about embracing what you're given and has been open about her and her husband's struggle to conceive and all the complications along the way. She puts her story out there so others, especially women of color, don't feel so alone when dealing with such a taboo subject such as infertility. Welcome to the podcast, Brittany. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So do you want to give us a quick backstory about you and your husband and how you started to try to conceive. Okay. I'll try to sum this up (laughs) as short and sweet as I can. So I, well, eventually I started the blog in back in 2013. My husband and I had started dating in 2011. Um, And there's this big movement in the black community about going natural and, you know, stopping chemically straightening your hair. And I was in the bathroom one day and I cut off all my hair and I called my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time over. And I was like, can you come help me because I can't cut the back. And he was like, what's happening? What are you doing? So it was just like a spur of the moment. I was like, you know what? I'm tired of like trying to transition from straight from curly to straight hair. And it was a lot. So I did that and I had like an inch of hair and I felt like it was really a liberating moment for me. But then I felt like my face was really exposed. So I was like, hmm, like, what about makeup? Like I need to, I feel like I can do a lot with my face. I have such a great canvas. So that's how I started my blog back in 2013. Uh, But fast forward a few years to 2015, my husband and I got married and we decided to wait, you know, it's pretty standard, wait the year Mm -hmm. um, before you start trying to conceive. So we did, we did a lot of traveling and we decided after this one big trip we had planned for our one year anniversary to Europe that we would start trying. So came off the pill and I didn't have a period for the whole rest of that year. Um, I remember talking to my primary care doctor and she kind of brushed me off. She said, Oh, if it doesn't like regulate within a year, then you need to go see somebody and talk about it. And I was like, you know what? That's not a good enough answer for me. Within a year. (laughs) Yes. She said a year of getting, stopping the pill. Um, you know, if it's not normal or regular, then come see me and we can talk about it. So I was like, "Mm, no, I don't like that answer. And also my mother is a nurse and that's when she started putting the PCOS word in my head. I hadn't really heard Mm -hmm. it before then. And she was like, maybe just call your OB and see if you can get in with her, see what she thinks about it. So I scheduled an appointment with her. Um, This was after, I think I got a period after 60 days that first time. And then I had another 60 day cycle. And then I was like, this is, that's not normal. Let me go to the doctor. So she immediately said, you know, this could be PCOS, but let's test like your testosterone. Let's check your ovaries. Let's see what's going on. Let's test your AMH. So she did that in May, May of that year, diagnosed me with PCOS. 
we did one month of um, electrical cycle with the OB, which was kind of a waste of time mm-hmm. <laughs> looking back at it. Like, why did I do that? But immediately we went on to um, the fertility clinic. So we started with my first fertility clinic and we did seven rounds of letrozole with two IUIs included. The protocol never really changed. There was never really any communication with the doctor at this location. So I had a really bad experience with an IUI, a doctor who was on call for Saturday after we waited maybe three hours after our appointment. He just kind of came in, did the IUI and left. Ooh. And, and then I had a friend's baby shower to go to later that day. That was a horrible day. So like it. yeah, it was terrible. So I was like, you know, what? I'm never going back there. We're going to take a break. This was um, September, October, end of October last uh, 2017. We're going to take a break, go to a new clinic in the new year, start over. So, you know, that three month break was good. We took a break for the holidays, you know, lost some weight, didn't stress, even though I am a natural warrior, didn't stress. (laughs) Um, And then come January, we were ready. At the end of January, we had our appointment with our new clinic where we were eventually successful. But at that time I had January 31st. I remember specifically, we went to meet with our new doctor and we loved her. We loved everything about her. And I remember that was a Wednesday and that Sunday I had a positive pregnancy test. So, you know, trying for so long and just seeing that positive, I was kind of like, what is going on? Is this real? What's happening? So Luckily, even though I had just only seen her for one consultation, they followed me throughout the pregnancy and they Mm -hmm. tested my betas, which looking back, they always doubled, but they were a little low. Um, And then we did ultrasounds. So within the three ultrasounds, I never knew, like my periods were still semi-irregular. They were maybe like 25 to 29 days at the time so I had a rough idea but we weren't even trying so I had no idea Mm -hmm. when we had conceived so we had the first ultrasound they said okay um we're not quite sure how far along you are but come back in a week and we'll see we had another ultrasound we're not sure what's going on come back in two weeks this time and then we'll see so by the third ultrasound it was pretty clear on the ultrasound, and this is rare for molar pregnancies, and I know we'll get into that a little late, later, but it was very clear to my doctor that it was a molar pregnancy on the screen at that time. So what did it look like? It was like little pockets, little holes, and that's why they call they call them moles. Mm-hmm. And it was just everywhere. Um, at that second ultrasound, we had seen like a gestational sac that was kind of shaped a little weird. But we did catch a heartbeat that was low, but it was still like high 90s. So it wasn't my heartbeat. Mm-hmm. But by that third time, there was like pockets, like, you know, the gestational sac is like that black hole. Like they were just small black holes everywhere when she looked in the ultrasound. And we couldn't find a heartbeat or anything like that at that last appointment. So I had to have an emergency DNC the next day um, with molar pregnancies. You don't get the option of, you know, taking the pill or waiting it out just because of the nature of what could happen with the tissue. Um, What could happen? So you could get, um, they call it like a gestational trophoblastic neoplasia. So um, essentially if the, the cells that form the placenta 
they keep growing kind of like a cancer, but it's not cancerous at this point. Uh-huh. So they just keep multiplying, multiplying, and they're fed by the HCG in your body. So usually with a molar pregnancy, you have very, very high levels of HCG for compared to where you are gestationally. Um, but I didn't have that. So it was weird. The whole, nothing about this has been normal or textbook. <laughs> so and it was my, a spontaneous pregnancy. Yeah, it was a spontaneous pregnancy. Um, you know, molar. So there are two kinds of molar pregnancies. So there's a partial molar and a complete molar. So a partial molar happens when two sperm fertilize an egg. And you could still have um, you can still have a heartbeat, the baby might develop, but um, at some point you, the molar tissue is going to overcome the pregnancy. Um, there are some cases that people have like a complete mole in a surviving twin, which oh. it's, it's, it, yeah, it's very strange, but that's very, very rare, even though molar pregnancy is already rare. So the second type is a complete molar and that happens when a sperm fertilizes an egg that has no genetic material. Oh. So, yeah. So this was all playing in my mind while this was going out. I was like, okay, so is this an egg quality issue? Because, you know, when one sperm fertilizes an egg, the egg is supposed to send out those hormones to stop any of the sperm, any other sperm from getting into it. So what's going on with me? What's happening? But that would play into a part like down the line when we did IVF. Hmm. So we had that DNC, um, the emergency DNC done. Like my doctor was going on vacation, like within two days. And she was like, no, I need to get in there. I need to do this. And this needs to like basically come out right now. Mm-hmm. And that was the day before my husband's birthday. Oh, that year. Yeah, it was it was a fantastic start to 2018. <sighs> <laughs> so with the molar, you because the tissues feed on HCG and that you can continue to grow molar tissue, you still need to have your HCG checked consistently. So after the molar, I had it checked every single week until it hit negative. So I was in there, the RE's office weekly. Um, And I remember actually, I remember her calling me on her vacation and giving me the pathology that came back as a complete molar. So a complete molar um, has a higher chance of turning into something more serious Mm -hmm. that could eventually lead to a cancer. So she did have me go visit um, a gynecological oncologist, one of her colleagues. Yeah. (laughs) And we sat and we talked about everything. So basically the treatment for um, a complete molar, even though we still we're kind of on the fence about being at a complete or partial because we did see a heartbeat at one ultrasound. And by the next one, it looked like the molar cells had completely taken over the pregnancy, but you know, that's what pathology said. So she put me on the stricter plan for the complete molar. So that involves um, weekly HCG checks until you hit negative. So anything under five is considered negative mm-hmm. at my clinic. Some people like to see zero. So once I reached negative, I had to have three more weekly checks for it to be negative. And then I had to have six months of negative HCG checks. Wow. Yes. So it's, it's a lot. So we met with the oncologist. She said, you know what? I've seen maybe like five of these in her 30 years. 
And I'm like, what are the odds? Yeah, that this would happen to me. And it usually happens in older women and some other factors. I was 29. I was 28 at the time. 2029. Forgetting how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was 29 at the time. We'd been going through infertility and this rare pregnancy complication happened to me. It was it's very strange. Like I remember, and it's so weird that reality TV helps you kind of put a frame of preference. It does. (laughs) Yeah. So I remember, um, Dr. Oh, what is the little couple? Dr. Jen Arnold. Yeah. Years ago, she had, um, cancer that was the, I guess the more severe form. Like if you have a molar pregnancy and it's becomes persistent, you can develop um, a type of cancer in the, like the molars can turn into cancer. So she had that type of cancer. And I remember it because I was watching her adoption story when she adopted like her kids and she was getting, I think her set, her daughter, she was adopting her from India and she was over there and she kept bleeding or passing like these grape like tissues. And I was like, you know what? That kind of popped into my mind. And then so randomly, while I was pregnant with that pregnancy, I saw an episode of Seeking Sister Wife, not to be confused with Sister Wives. <laughs> well, that's one of the new Seeking you, Sister Wife is one of the new ones. <laughs> that sounds familiar. And they're are they kind of like non Mormon? They're not okay. The yeah. Sister Wives aren't Mormon. <laughs> yeah, they're like you know, yeah, whole fundamentalist, like not not a part of any. I don't think they're. They're just They're polygamous, part of anything. right? Yeah. But Seeking Sister Wife, it's just people who don't even, there's one couple, I think, who doesn't even have any type of religious affiliation. That's just, you know, how they're living their life. Yeah. So there was one couple who, or couple, group, <laughs> there's one group, <laughs> and the one of the wives had a molar pregnancy. And I remember watching that while I was still in like ultrasound limbo, like, oh, what is that? I've never heard of that, but not oh. really paying much attention to it. But yeah, she saw it on her ultrasound too. And I was like, what are the odds that like two weeks later, this is actually what's happening to me. So thanks to reality TV for opening my eyes to that. I just wonder (laughs) if it's not as rare as we think, or I don't know. Yeah, and it, it could be a function. And that's what my doctor was saying, because you're followed so closely by a fertility clinic, um, maybe you wouldn't have caught that by the time, like if you're a regular person and you go to your OB, you're like eight, nine weeks at that point. So I don't know. Would you usually miscarry on your own with this if you weren't being followed or what happens? In my case, and then in a lot of cases, um, it's usually like, you know, the doctor, a lot of cases you can't see it on ultrasound because for some reason, mine was just very prevalent at the time. So we were able to, and you know that the RE has better ultrasounds than the OB. Right. In my experience. So maybe we could see it better. But I've had a lot of women reach out to me and say, oh, you know, um, we just thought there was a blighted ovum or something Mm -hmm. like that. And then only if you go on to do that genetic testing on the material, I hate that, like, yeah. The products of conception. Um, that's how we found out that this was a molar. Okay. Yeah, they say one in 1,000, but I have literally never met anybody in my real life. 
I've met people online because I've, I've sought them out who has gone through this or has known what this is when I bring that word up, unless you're a medical professional. I've heard of it because I'm a hypochondriac. Oh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> so, but that's I've, like, yeah, yeah, it was always one of those things you just keep scrolling through. Like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. Oh, 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 what is this? Yeah. And why does it take so long to get over? I, yeah, I, I did a bunch of research into it at one point because I was like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And so I had heard of it when you said that you had it actually happened to you, but I've never actually known anyone. Right. Like it's usually women over 40 um, because, and this, like I said, this ties back to my IVF, how I prepared for IVF because this happened. So in my head, either option, whether it was a partial or complete, because I still have a debate about what actually happened, um, indicates a problem with the egg. So I was like, okay, hmm. if I, I either produced an egg that had no genetic material or I produced an egg that allowed two sperm to fertilize it. Like which one, which one is it? I don't um, know. Yeah, I, mean I know. PCOS can affect egg quality. Yeah. And the testosterone can make your eggs act like uh, someone who's almost going into menopause. So maybe right. maybe it's a PCOS. Yeah. So that was that was my theory. My doctor would let us, um, I think I hit negative in May. So my doctor said we can't do any like transfer or I couldn't get pregnant again until November. My in the meantime, she was like, okay, you know what, we can do a retrieval. And leading up to that, you know, I read, well, when I say I read, I loosely read, um, it starts with the egg, um, but learned about some supplements, you know, that I could take like CoQ10, Ubiquinol, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, I was doing that. I had already been doing inositol. And what else? Oh, I was on metformin. That was a nightmare. Oof. <laughs> yeah. So we did retrieval. We were very successful. We had 23 eggs retrieved. Um, awesome. Yeah, 14 fertilized or made it to day one, mm -hmm. more fertilized than that. And all 14 of them, we froze on day five, which was oh my gosh, weird. Yeah, I was like, how, what are the odds of that happening? I have never heard anybody that happening to anyone before. I was like, yeah, everything that was fertilized on day one made it to freeze. That's um, great. Yeah. So we were really lucky with that. Around Halloween, we started prep for a transfer. My first attempt got canceled because my lining wouldn't get that trilaminar shape mm -hmm. that they wanted. The three so was, stripes. Yep. Is that what it yeah. yeah. I was like, trilaminar? I was like, what does that even mean? So <laughs> it couldn't get there. I was doing like the patches and pretty normal protocol at that point. So yeah. Early November, we had a hysteroscopy. There's absolutely nothing. He didn't find anything. Um, he just wanted to check, especially since I had a molar, you know, that there wasn't anything preventing my lining in a DNC. There wasn't anything like preventing my lining from being thick. Mm -hmm. So then we started again the next day with another protocol, another crazy protocol that I think we're going to talk about a little later. No, we can <laughs> um, talk about it now. We can talk about it now. Yeah. All right. So he put me on um vaginal viagra also <laughs> called sildenafil citrate and it looks like you know those like asmr soap videos <laughs> that you see all side Instagram? note i hate asmr 
<laughs> it like it makes me feel so uncomfortable. Do you, do you like, like it? Yeah, I like the soap, like the little squares. It's so I like seeing too. it. I just don't like hearing it. No, I don't like food. Like that would drive me crazy. But I like the soap. I like I, the noise, the soap. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I just like seeing them cut it because it looks cool. And people are probably like, what are they talking about? Yeah. The, yeah. People cut soap. Like they put lines in the soap and then they cut it out. Basically. Yeah, it was like a box cutter and they have their volume. They have really, really sensitive mics. So you just hear all the little squares of soap hitting the table. <laughs> it's just satisfying. I want to try it, but I think I'll like gouge my hand. With yeah, the I was just cutter. thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, I would definitely so cut dangerous. myself. Yeah. Sorry, what were you saying about the soap? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so it's like soap consistency so oh. i had to get it from a compounding um pharmacy so they had to make it from scratch because it's not like you just put the little blue pill you know yeah. as a suppository like you do with the estrace so i made them and they came in like little bullet shapes and they had to be in the fridge <laughs> so huh. random yeah so i i got those i was on vaginal viagra four times a day four times a day That's and a i was yes and i was on estrace two times a day and i was talking to my nurse and i was like well can i just you know double it up and she's like no don't take them at the same time so i had a <laughs> okay. six suppositories a day yeah for about 20 days wow yeah it was a nightmare and like the progesterone those suppositories i was on those through the molar pregnancy and then mm. um, when i was doing iuis and everything those have like a coating on them that kind of make everything a little chunky. What are yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These don't. So everything oh. is like water, Ooh. like water. And then the estrace is blue and it was just a hard, hard Smurf time. water. Yeah. <laughs> Smurf water everywhere. So, oh man. Uh, yeah. In addition to that, I had to do um, the estrogen injections every three days too. Oh, yeah. So that was the that's intramuscular. So the same way you do progesterone and oil. And my lining was just under an eight, I want to say, oh. even with all of this. So my doctor had said, you know, maybe you're just one of those people who has a naturally thin lining. So we're going to try this. And let's see if it works. So he wasn't going to cancel me again. <laughs> yeah. So we transferred. And it was successful. So yeah. Did you have side effects with the Viagra? Yeah. So the idea is to like, you know, how it works in a man, you know, draw blood, f blood flow down mm. to that region. So yeah. the idea was if he was trying to draw more blood flow to my uterus to make my lining thicker. So, yeah, it's definitely I don't know if it changed any of my libido, maybe, maybe a little bit, but mm. all the discharge from all of it coming out kind of killed it so it kind of negated <laughs> it negated oh. itself did you have to do steroids too or did you not have to do no that? so it's weird in between the first attempt fet attempt and this one they had met as a practice and they i guess they decided that um you know steroids they weren't going to prescribe them to everybody anymore no yeah. so they stopped that and baby aspirin they were like, yeah, oh. we're no longer doing this. They must have had like some type of forum and we're like, yeah, we don't really see a difference. So the option was there to take them, but I didn't. I think I I did do baby aspirin, but I didn't do any of the steroids. I was like, you know what? This is, this is a lot. That is a <laughs> I lot. I can do baby aspirin. Did you stay on the baby aspirin or? 
Yeah, they had me stay on that until we heard a heartbeat. And then they told us, told me to stop. That's, I mean, that's nice. One less pill. So he was like, yeah, you don't have to do it. And I hate when doctors do that, you know, but I mean, they're trying to empower you to make the decision. I understand. How are we supposed to make that decision? (laughs) Right. I'm like, I don't know. Like, what was the data you guys discussed at this (laughs) quorum where you decided that this wasn't going to be standard anymore? Yet you tell me what to do. (laughs) Right. Please, please help me. Well, (sighs) yeah. At least it all worked out. It did work out. Yeah. That. Okay. So I'm going to switch gears here. Okay. What were the reactions from your family to your infertility? So I wasn't out to the rest of my family about my infertility until the day of my DNC or the day I found out I needed a DNC. And that's when I just kind of came out to the world. I was like, I was so fed up. I was so angry. I was like, you know what? Like this whole society or cultural norm we have that makes women be silent until 12 weeks when you're in the safe zone or, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't share about a miscarriage. I was like, you know what? This is really hard and I'm really annoyed by this. So I just kind of word vomited all over my social media. (laughs) That's when my social media kind of flipped from being about, you know, just my life to, hey, let's let's shine lights on these social issues. So I had a lot of great support um, from my family. My mom is a nurse, so she's pretty familiar yeah. with everything. My sister had a brief um, stint with infertility for her first. So she was very familiar with everything too. And my dad is just kind of like, I just want you to be okay. You know, Aww, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I don't understand the particulars, but are you okay? Oh, yeah. that's so sweet. Yeah, that's how, that's always been his reaction. And then my husband's family, you know, um, and it, we'll probably get into this in the second half. They, you hear anecdotes about, oh, so-and-so did this to get a baby. So uh-huh. they had kind of like a limited understanding, but they've always been super supportive in whatever we needed to do. I came out and was sharing my story. And this is my personal Instagram. I was like, you know what? I'm not making another Instagram because this is my life. And if you don't want to hear about it, you can unfollow me. Like, it's completely fine. It's in your face because you're going to know maybe one day when you're facing this, like, hey, what didn't Brittany talk about this? Or let me reach out to her. Let me ask her a question because I'm feeling the same way. So I did have some kind of weird reactions to that. Mm. But this was from like kind of acquaintances and, you know, people who just kind of dismiss things like oh just pray about it like yeah you know yeah like that type of thing like oh don't worry about it you don't need to do anything like i need i need the action and the prayer so (laughs) yeah your advice is not helpful (laughs) sorry but those were people that we never interact with on a regular basis so it didn't really phase me that's good yeah that's so great that both sides were supportive Mm-hmm. because yeah. some, sometimes they're not yeah I know I think there was some hesitation and my mom is a nurse so she does know like about all these hormones and she was just really adamant that I consider all these things or what or make sure that I we tried on our own because you know we did get pregnant naturally but look what happened the rare genetic complication that doesn't happen to anyone happened yeah. so I really didn't put much faith in that like you mm-hmm. know people will say well at least you can get pregnant And I was like, but yeah, it was 
a rare form of miscarriage that happened to me. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not encouraging. That's a little um, scary. I right, mean. right. And that was, yeah, before that year, I had come into it thinking, okay, well, we're going to have to do IVF in January. And I was completely on board. I was ready to do it. And then mm. I got pregnant naturally. Or naturally, I hate that. Spontaneously. Um, the, is what... the conventional way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or spontaneously. Um, and then I got pregnant that way. And then I was like, you know what? I don't really have faith in the ability to do that. So that's why I was like, you know, with IVF, we did PGS testing. Okay. I was going to ask, did you test? Yeah. I don't think I mentioned that. Yes, we did. So out of the 14, 11 came back normal. Okay. Which is interesting. So PGS testing actually can't detect um, a complete molar pregnancy, which was also scary. It can detect, it can detect a partial. Okay. But a complete one um yeah they don't the pgs wouldn't catch that so we're like kind of shot in the dark here i was like all right (laughs) let's i hope it doesn't happen again because you are at an increased risk of it happening again once you have one did they tell you what was not normal with the three embryos yeah it was just just random nothing like and i think this is also a misconception that um that it's a bunch of like embryos that have down syndrome like not that was not the case at all yeah. it was very random incompatible with life like you don't have a chromosome on 12 or i don't know the, the yeah it is. <laughs> yeah translocation we'll have, of something right like you're missing a chromosome here or this is missing here or this is missing here so it was just very very random nothing you know which happens to a lot yeah. like it's normal for that to happen, but you, most people just don't know that they got pregnant or. Right. Yeah. Miscarriage. You're hyper aware when you go through, you know, infertility. So, you know, like from the second it happens that. Oh yeah. Yeah. You are enough. And this is my therapist. I highly recommend seeing a therapist um, who specializes in infertility. She has helped me out so much in these couple of years she's always, you know, telling me that you are enough. Like, don't drive yourself crazy trying to fit 22 things in before your transfer. Like, mm. just believe that you're enough, which is hard to understand. But I, I feel like I got to that point right before, um, right before my retrieval, because I was trying to do acupuncture. They wanted acupuncture like twice a week. I was trying to go in for these monitoring appointments. I was trying to... Uh, you know, do my day job. And I was like, I am driving myself crazy. Like I'm going to have a mental breakdown if I keep trying to do all of these things. So I had to cut back. Like, you know what? I know acupuncture is great, but I can't, I literally can't. You're giving me a panic attack by having to be here two to three times a week on top of doing a cycle. Plus they're sticking needles into you. I know. And I didn't find, sometimes I didn't find it relaxing because I have anxiety. My mind is always a thousand miles a minute. It's just laying there. Just help me. Just, I can't, I can't zone out. I'm not good at that. I need to. I know what you mean. Work on it. I did acupuncture once and she left, she, she put the needles in and then left. I'm like, you're just going to leave me in here. Yeah. And that's exactly what it was. And 
it was weird. Like I would just think about things like, oh, there's a spider web in the corner or what am I going to do after this? Or what happened to that at work? Or how is this IVF cycle or this needle over here hurts? And he used like the electricity. Oh, um, he was a great guy. He was very, he was fantastic. But I was just like, you know what? This is causing me more stress than it is helping my mental state. So mm. I'm just going to wing it. I'm just going to go into this retrieval and see what happens. Yeah, that's what the therapy, the therapy was so helpful to just kind of get me out of my head when I needed it. Because I, I just need to word vomit on it because my husband, he's very, he's so optimistic. He's the most supportive person I know. He's always like cheering for everybody. He's like, everything will work out fine. Even when, you know, we're going through really hard things. And that annoys me sometimes, to be honest, just because of my personality. I'm like, but what about this? Like, all of these things can go wrong. (laughs) Like, What do you mean? How are you so excited about it? He just doesn't focus on that. So I like, stop thinking about that. Right. And I'm like, I can't. I literally can't. Like, it'll just pop in my head like, oh, be worried about this. (laughs) Even after... Yeah, even after like now going to doctor's appointments, like then some random I'll go on like baby center, which I yeah. don't advise anybody to do, like in the birth boards. And somebody will say, Hey, I fell down and did this, and because of this, I broke my pelvis and I delivered her. Like some random scenario, right? Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> that like it, who is this gonna happen to? But since it's happened to me once, I'm hyper vigilant about these things. Yeah. So, oh man, uh, yeah. it's a conundrum. The problems of anxiety. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, from here, I'm going to throw it over to Kayla, who's going to finish the second half of this interview with you. I know the the next segment here, we're going to talk about um, infertility among women of color. And I know that that's a big, you know, thing that you're passionate about and want to advocate for. And um, I know Sarah gave you, talked about that a little bit in her intro with you. But I wanted to read a quote from you from your interview on the Pregnantish website Uh where you said, Um, In my experience in African-American culture, infertility is still a taboo topic to many people. I hope that by sharing our story, we can make people feel less alone and more empowered to speak their truth. And before you go on, I just want to I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and talking about this. Sarah and I believe it's an important topic, but as two white women, of course, we cannot speak to that experience specifically. Right. And yeah. so I wanna first thank you. And then I wanna hear you talk about, you know, why why do you find infertility infertility to be such a taboo topic in the African-American community? So I believe it's, taboo and I don't know of a better word to describe it because it's something that's people are just not exposed to um people mostly don't know anybody who's been through it they haven't seen anybody um besides recently like there have been a number of celebrities throughout you know the early 2000s and the 90s and then with Michelle Obama and Gabrielle Union speaking out more recently people kind of put a face to it but nobody really talks about it it's kind of like how 
nobody talks to each other at the fertility clinic. Mm. <laughs> um, it's kind of like if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. Like these these hard things, we can get through them. So that that's been my experience, and I'm a person. I have like a personality type that I can just I'm comfortable with making other people uncomfortable. <laughs> so I will talk about it. Um, people will ask, um, you know, previously, like, when are you having kids? And I would give them a full on direct answer and it would people would just look at me like taking aback, like, great, thank you. <laughs> and it's moving. So um, that's why when I came out about my story last year, I had so many people that were unexpectedly going through the same thing, who are not public about it, who don't talk to anyone about it, who I know in my personal life also, just like, yeah, this is happening to me, but, you know, I feel like I can't talk about it, or I feel like I'm not empowered to speak out about it. Um, so I felt like maybe that's like one of my callings to... If I share my story and I make it more normalized, then I can help other people who feel like they don't have a voice or haven't found their voice in the community yet. I can take all the, the hits. Yeah. Um, because I really, you know, I'm not a, I don't really care about. Um, you can let it roll off like, a little I, easier. Like, yeah, I can let it roll off my shoulders because I started posting on my personal account. Like I never made like a TTC specific account. Sure. This is like real life. Like I'm tired of like the curated social media, um, the curated social media world, which is kind of where I came from when I started my blog. It mm -hmm. was makeup in 2013, like before, you know, beauty viewers kind of took over and became this whole business. And I was just so sick of that image. Like everything's perfect. Here's my picture. I'm traveling everywhere, but really I cry every day because I'm going through this. So I'm just yeah. like, this is it's just going to be real. I, I will say it's been easier or I don't know if it's an overabundance of, well, I'll go to the opposite. I'll say it's a lack of representation in the community. Mm -hmm. So especially with the Instagram uh, TTC world. I don't know if everybody out there is a part of that, but mostly I find it's the fear of backlash from their friends or from their family, or they don't want people in their business, which is totally fine. I totally get it. You have to find that line between I'm going to share this and then I'm going to keep this private. And I think it was easier to find empathy and understanding from that TTC community instead of maybe black women as a whole. Um, I think because of some of the, like, the stereotypes and um, things like that and some of like black women get married later in age or a lot of my friends are not um, around this age, they're not really thinking about that, that it was kind of hard for them to, you know, fully empathize with what's going on until you get there. You Like I read articles all the time, like, you know, millennials have X, Y, and Z amount of debt or they're waiting till this to get married or some of them are still living with their parents. And... I guess millennial, like I'll say around the 30, 35 age, age range is what I'm referring to right now. And they're just, they're just not in there. And I hope that sharing my story, I can get some of them to start thinking about it. Even if you don't want kids, just start thinking about your own fertility and, you know, questioning why you're doing this to your body or what this means, because I feel like we've just, everyone hasn't been empowered with the information they need to make informed decisions. I read an article on womenshealthmag.com specifically about infertility among women of color. 
And I wanted to first read some of the statistics, and then I wanted you to uh, maybe speak to some of the stereotypes or myths that they address in the article, um, and just Uh get your take on that. So uh, a couple of statistics here. Um, Married African-American women experience infertility at almost twice the rate of white women. However, only 8% of African-American women seek help to conceive as opposed to 15% of their white counterparts, and they reportedly wait twice as long before seeking treatment. Maybe most surprisingly, according to a survey that that they did, um, over a third of black women in the U.S. have never talked to their partner, family, or even friends about their fertility, making them the group least likely to speak up about the topic. So again, maybe you can talk to me about why you think that those statistics exist. Why is there such a disparity here? So... There's many, many reasons, but... <laughs> yes, I know, it's a complicated answer. Yeah, it's a very complicated answer. So in my experience, and I'll speak to like my core group of college friends, we're all um, African-American women, um, and I, I'll say for like the eight of us, there we all have like nightmarish period, periods. So, you know, like super painful or I've had a period for a month or like me, I didn't have a period for two and a half months. And it's kind of, the conversation's kind of normalized around that. So I'll say that in my friend group. So, you know, you could be in an an echo chamber to use that word of, okay, well, everybody's periods are really painful or everybody's periods, you know, you have to call out of work or whatever. Um, But I will say... I find a lot, and this can go back to, I know people have seen the articles about black, um, well, black and women's mortality rates in the United States um, surrounding birth, specifically to black women, like the Serena Williams stories about she told the doctor that she felt X, Y, Z. I think she believed she was having a stroke um, after she gave birth to her daughter, Olympia, and the doctors didn't believe her. So... I think a lot of that plays into that. Um, people are less likely to get treatment because they feel like they're not being believed. Like for mm-hmm. example, I think I had PCOS maybe as early as like 18, but back then that's just get on the pill. Sure. Nobody really. And I think the guidelines have changed that you're supposed to diagnose people a little later in life now, but I wish somebody had said to me, hey, maybe this could happen further on down the line if this is what's going on instead of just, oh, you're not trying to get pregnant now. It doesn't matter. Um, so I think I think that plays into it. I think the age at which black women get married and settle down, and I think it's really important in our community to, to have these goalposts. Like, I need to have X, Y, and Z before I can feel like I can settle down and move on to my next phase in life. And, you know, to be professionally stable, that could take, and especially with, you know, the millennial generation, that could take years. You could be, you know, 40 by the time you're like, I feel like I have accomplished something where I've paid off my student loans to another, another aspect um, to where I can have kids. And I also think that it's extremely cost prohibitive. And I know uh, my husband and I come from a very privileged place as far as the money for IVF and everything comes from. But I know that's not the norm. I know we're an exception. So, yeah, and, and I think it was last week or this 
this actual week that it was Women's Equal Pay Day and, you know, there's all those graphics floating around about, you know, women in general making less than a white man. But, you know, black women and Indian women make this much less than a white woman. Which kind of um, is a good segue into some of these stereotypes and myths that I wanted to touch on. Um, in the article, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Reverend Stacy Edwards Dunn. She's the founder of Fertility for Colored Girls. And she's quoted uh-huh. in the article as saying, quote, I didn't think that black people struggled with infertility because... Based upon what I was led to believe, black women and men are hyper-fertile baby-making machines. So the first uh-huh. very common stereotype among not just the African-American community, but communities at large, is that black women are hyper-fertile. Do you find that to be true? Um, I don't, actually, especially with the, the prevalence of issues like endometriosis and PCOS in black women and women of color overall. Um, but that's like one of those holdovers from, you know, I also like history. That's like really big. Me and my husband are really into that. But that's one of those holdover stereotypes from slavery days. Yeah. Um, you know, because that's what we were used for um, to make babies. So you essentially didn't have to pay for an extra slave, you know, on the plantation or what have you. So I think that's also why it plays into the stigma in talking about it. Um, because you just assume that nobody else has an issue. So if you assume that it's just you and then you go into these fertility clinics and it's you're the only black person, you're the only brown person, you're the only Asian person in there, I think that starts to compound in your thinking. So mm-hmm. I think that just helps to, you know, further the, okay, let me be quiet and not speak about this. Or I think another aspect that plays into it, and I have read um, – her book she's got a book i read after my miscarriage is like hope like she does the fertility for color girls and i see they're doing like a world tour a world tour um, <laughs> a u.s tour this year so that's really exciting um but yeah it's a lot of and i think a lot of decisions come from uh, you know the faith-based aspect so i think a lot of people will say well if it's not happening naturally and I see these comments all the time on people's social media if it's not happening naturally then it's not meant to happen (sighs) or yeah or like I had one comment like when I shared everything about my miscarriage last year someone said well God doesn't make mistakes Mm. (laughs) which is the worst the Mm. worst thing you can say to be empathetic to anyone going through any type of situation I'm like so what are you saying like so like, what are you saying? Like, yeah. What do you even mean by that? What are you like, saying? Sit down and think about it. What do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's a way, um, you know, to be have someone centered in their faith, whatever their faith may be, but still, you know, have them be accountable for, you know, their own fertility. Like that saying that, like, faith without works is dead. And that can apply to any religion. Um, yeah, I just, I just think that, that's often the case. And that was, and that's a lot of the response I get from people who are outside of my circle. Like, oh yeah, just pray about it. Right. Okay. I'm going to pray about it and I'm going to do something. Yeah. So <laughs> like, Both like, can I be know, true. like a lot of it is out of my hands, but not as all long of as it. I'm actively working. Right. All of it, like seeking treatment is in my hate control, you know, yeah. 
making the embryos like that all that stuff is not in my hands specifically but you know I just need to meet like an action with an action sure yeah because you know you have those people in your family like who never had kids but it was like never under never explained why or understood why Mm -hmm. you just thought that you know they were living child free by choice and then you grow up and you find out that they weren't and you know it was just kind of uh oh it never happened for me Mm -hmm. so it's like okay like I wonder like how what that mind frame is and why there's shame around that like that shouldn't be if you're child free by choice, or even if you're child free, decided to live a child free life after going through infertility, which I still feel like you have, that's an awesome story to tell to your family, your nieces, your nephews, but you know, it's still kind of, oh, we don't talk about that. Like, you know, Aunt Sharon doesn't have, or, you know, Aunt Sally doesn't have X, Y, Z. So I think that's hard also. It doesn't devalue you as a human just because you didn't procreate. You're still every right. bit as valuable as, as the next guy or girl. Yeah. Right. And I think um, because this is my personal Instagram, I share a lot of views about that. Like I'm pretty passionate about people who also choose not to have children. I think they don't get a lot of support that they need um, within, you know, our infertility community. Yeah. So you just you just spoke about this, but the second um, stereotype or myth that was in this article was that, quote, IVF is only for rich white women. And this dates back to you talked about this um, sort of and it kind of goes back to like campaigns in the 1980s when IVF and fertility treatments became a big thing. They pushed these fertility fertility treatments on the public and it overwhelmingly featured white couples. And so you just talked about this, that, um, you know, if you if you go to the doctor and you're the only um, woman of color sitting in the waiting room, it further stigmatizes or it further. um, What's the word? It 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 almost like solidifies this feeling that you're the only one. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that also. And I think the like I did used to do YouTube at some point. I'm very, very inconsistent, but I did film <laughs> a lot of videos going through the miscarriage, like up to that, up to that point. And I've switched over to Instagram because I found the community more engaging. So I remember looking through and I follow people, you know, you follow the hashtag, like somebody like hashtag molar pregnancy or something. Like, okay, let me scroll through. Let me see who's been through it. Let me like some things. Let me follow some accounts. And I remember specifically thinking, and this could be because a lot of them are anonymous, but I was like, I see nobody who looks like me mm. in like those top pages. Like you can keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and you know, nobody is really sharing their story. So when I came out and decided to be part of the community, I was also looking for people who hadn't succeeded yet. Cause I felt that was important. I felt like it was, it's a different story to start sharing your story after you've been successful, you mm-hmm. know, the first time with your first or second child. Um, Cause you're still in the weeds. Cause there's also a weird dichotomy there. Once you become successful, um, a lot of the TTC Instagram accounts also, um, you know, kind of resent people for it. And I think I've seen that happen on, you know, with podcasts, other infertility podcasts. If one of the hosts becomes pregnant, I've seen a lot of backlash. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, from the community about that. And it's interesting because, you know, we're all trying to, that's the one goal we're trying to achieve. 
And I don't think anybody's, you know, trying to beat each other over the head with their success or anything like that. But at the same time, that's still part of the journey. Um, but yeah, to the anonymous accounts, I see them and I'd be like, okay. And then I somehow, like, sometimes I even look at the emojis, you know, the emojis, the skin color ones that people use. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, she, I, she's a woman of color. Okay. Or, oh, they posted like a picture of them in their feed, but it was very hard to go in and specifically find them. Um, I also am part of another group called Sisters in Loss. And that's also, she has a, a podcast as well. She has a Facebook group. So she's trying to pull together. Um, Is that you know, Erica? Her, yeah, 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 Erica. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, she's trying to pull together her platform of, you know, infant and pregnancy loss Mm -hmm. which is a very specific specific niche so I found her and we started talking and you know through her well I find you know other people who are going through it but I I try to reach out and I try to explain it like on my Instagram stories just so everyone has an idea of what it's like to go through this what's going on even if you're not out on your like I've had people with Tens of tens of hundreds, hundreds of thousands of followers message me and say, hey, I'm going through this, but I can't speak out about this. I, you know, whether, that's a whole other thing in our culture. Like we feel like we need to present this perfect image all the time on social media anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really detrimental. I think I don't know how we get out of that. I don't know how we got here, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, so I try to, that's why I keep, I keep sharing, I'll keep advocating for people just because it's kind of like that Lady Gaga song, like, but till it happens to you, you don't know, like, what's going on. So I try to, I try to put my face out there as much as I can and do whatever I can to say, hey, this could happen to you or this could happen to me and I look like you and maybe you see some of yourself in me or like culturally or, you know, what have you, since this is my personal Instagram, like this is me. Like whenever I feel like talking about something random, you get all of that, not just the TTC. So hopefully I make putting a more personable face to everything. Okay. Well, that's a good segue into our lightning round. So are you ready to answer some like, you know, random questions about yourself? Okay. So, first, you talked about with Sarah earlier the big chop a few that you did a mm-hmm. few years ago. I've always fantasized about like shaving my head or cutting my hair really short. <laughs> How yeah. can you explain uh, more like what that was about and how it made you feel. Maybe I can get empowered and encouraged to do it. <laughs> yeah, so um, there was a big thing and a big, I don't even know for how long, you know, I can go back to like Madam C.J. Walker in like the 20s, whatever, that invented, you know, the chemical relaxers. So mm. that was a cultural norm, like up until I was, you know, 20, I can't do the math. Whatever, how, whatever age I was in when I cut my hair off. That was a big cultural norm. So, you know, every, gosh, I can't even remember. Maybe every six to eight weeks, you'd go and get your hair chemically straightened. And that was just how it was. Everybody did it. Your moms did it. Your aunts did it. Your grandparents did it. Or, you know, some kind of way had straight hair. And that was the way, the way to look presentable. Um, and then this natural hair movement 
came along and people started cutting their hair off and growing out their relaxer, stop relaxing their hair and, you know, embracing natural curls. Like I had no idea I had curly hair. It was just so weird until I cut all my hair off because I had literally never seen it. Like there would be like a little bit of a wave in your roots, like when you needed a new relaxer, but then, you know, you would get a new relaxer and it's all straight. And you're like, oh, I just thought that was my hair color. And actually my hair color changed too when I stopped relaxing my hair, which is, you know, those chemicals are horrible. Yeah. <laughs> really probably shouldn't be applying them with the frequency that we did. But so when you're, go- tra- it's called transitioning. So when you're going through that, you have to, you can either like buzz cut it all off or you have to grow out your hair enough to where you have some hair but the straight hair stays on the end. So your roots were curly and then it was straight at the end. So it's a nightmare to try to comb hair, (laughs) a a horrible nightmare to try to comb hair that's transitioning. So I did it for like nine months and I was, my husband was at my apartment at the time and he was my boyfriend back then. And I had got out the shower and I was like trying to comb through it. And I was like, I am so done. And I just got scissors and I started cutting. Oh, girl. And, <laughs> and I have a picture of it. And I think, um, yeah, my Google Hangouts image, that was like pretty a few months after I had cut my hair. It's like, oh, that was cute. I like that. Um, so I just started cutting. And then I asked him to come in and do the back because I couldn't see the back. Oh. And he was like, what are you doing? And then he, I was like, I can't do it anymore. And he's like, okay, don't worry. I got you. We're going to cut your hair. It's going to be fine. Because it's very shocking. You're like, what did I do? And I think the first day, because I had to go to work. This is a weekday. Oh, no. So I had to go to work <laughs> the next day. And I was like, they were all looking at me like, what happened? Like, <laughs> what, what are you doing? And my hair was not curling in any kind of way. It was just kind of there. Because I didn't know what to do with it. Because I'd had stra- I thought I had straight hair my whole life. So, yeah, that first week, I was just kind of like what's happening until I started getting into YouTube videos. But yeah, YouTube really helped me. And I was like, oh my gosh, my face, I I have a big head. So (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I have so much canvas on my face. What can I do with this? So I started getting into like YouTube tutorial, makeup tutorials and buying makeup and all that stuff. So that's how my YouTube channel started. Your start in terms of social media, like you said, was as a beauty vlogger, blogger, And so I have a few beauty questions for you. Mm -hmm. If you could only choose one cosmetic a day, like you only get to pick one, which one would it be? Oh man, I have to say an eyebrow pencil because my eyebrows are very sparse. And they look great right now. Yeah, I've got eyebrow pencil on. Um, they're not, the color is like pretty light. So well, compared to my hair, so you can't really see it. Like if you take a picture with flash and I don't have eyebrows on, then I don't have eyebrows. So I would say that that's really hard. The second would have to be, um, foundation. I just love foundation. What's your favorite eyebrow pencil? Anastasia Brow Wiz. That's my number one. It never fails me. Okay. That's my favorite too. I love that one. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, this question's from Sarah. She says, because I don't know what she's talking about, so. <laughs> she said, what do you think of the Shane Dawson-Jeffree Star collab? 
Oh my goodness. So <laughs> I have complicated thoughts about Jeffree Star. <laughs> I don't um, know what it is. As, so. a, as a woman of color. <laughs> Pretend like you're talking to Sarah. <laughs> right. Yeah. As a woman of color. So Jeffree Star has done some problematic things, um, you know, in his past. Uh, not, not, not like the, like he, I know he got in trouble like years and years ago for some, like some slurs or something that he said, but um, I'm just talking about the way that he deals with certain other people in the community. Like mm-hmm. he's had some confrontations with other beauty gurus that didn't sit well with me. Like some of the arguments they've gotten into. Um, the Shane Dawson thing. I don't even know what type of products they'll make together, <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested to see it, but I personally haven't tried any um, Jeffrey. I have no, I've never tried any Jeffrey star cosmetics. But I do enjoy his lavish, like, lifestyle. I do enjoy <laughs> looking at that. I'm going to nod and pretend I know what you guys are talking about. I know. About. <laughs> yeah, it's such a Shane Dawson. <laughs> if Sarah was here, a, she'd be rolling her eyes that it didn't catch her cultural reference once more. <laughs> it happens all the time. Okay, a few more. These are should be a little quicker and not about beauty. So who was your childhood celebrity crush? So this is actually going on in my city right now. Um, the Millennium Tour with B2K, Mario, and oh gosh, who's the third? Pretty Ricky. So B2K, I think I used to like Little Fizz and B2K. He was my favorite. Mm-hmm. And then like for other boy bands, Backstreet Boys, Howie was always my favorite, which was <laughs> random. I think I was trying to be like counterculture because oh, sure. nobody, everybody liked AJ and Nick. And I was like, I like Howie. Um, yeah but those were my two my two main and I think it was their long hair that's gotta be it they both had like long hair and I was like yeah 12 year old me likes that (laughs) Uh, do you do sweet or salty um sweet sweet all the time especially sour sour sweet candies combo so like sour patch kids or something yeah I have some jelly beans downstairs that I'm probably gonna go get after this um, what is your favorite drink? It could be alcoholic or not. Drink? I'll say a category of drinks. <laughs> I really like slushies. Slushies are my jam. I have a Margaritaville machine nice. here in my house because I, I just love it. Especially since, um, you know, it's coming to froze time right now and I can't mm-hmm. drink that. So I'm like, you know what? I'll make um strawberry lemonade in my margaritaville machine and it's gonna be better than your dumb froze (laughs) (laughs) okay so you like like the any kind of slushy cock not cocktail but any kind of drink with frozen margaritas sure like um there's some place here that is like frozen gin and tonics oh that sounds good Frozen jack and cokes like if you make it a slushy i'm gonna drink it gotcha oh i like that uh, okay, what is your favorite TV show that you watch that you're kind of embarrassed to admit that you watch it? Um, I'm not embarrassed. So there's no shame <laughs> in my game. But I love 90 Day Fiance <laughs> and Love After Lockup. Really bad reality TV, but I just like the train wreck. I just like to watch it You happen. like to watch the train wreck. I get that. Yeah. I get that. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. what's your favorite thing in your closet right now? Um, these leggings that I have on right now, <laughs> they're from Lululemon. You know, this is a hard life. Like I wash them like 
constantly. I'm like, they're like going to fall apart and then I won't have any pants and I'll be really sad. It's okay. Worth it. But yeah, those are my favorite. And then I have a lot of favorite shoes, but right now I have um, some holographic Nikes that I really, really like. I also heard you're kind of into handbags. What's your favorite handbag? Oh, yes. So my holy grail, my unicorn in the handbag world, (laughs) (laughs) they call it. I have a Chanel Jumbo. And that one we picked up on our first anniversary in Paris. So it's got really a sentimental value to me. Okay. Your husband, Doug. Mm-hmm. Describe him in three words. Um, talkative. <laughs> loyal. And um, I got to say stubborn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're both fire signs. So, you know, he'll say the same about me, but he is very persistent. Let's use persistent. <laughs> sure. He's very persistent. Like, I'm right. And we're we're both that those people. Like, I'm right. No, I'm right. And then we're just kind of like at an impasse sometimes. Like, okay, well, I'm still right. That's a great way to spend so that. That's good. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I enjoy Funny watching way. both of you on Instagram. It's when he makes an appearance. It's fun. Okay. I hear also that you're a fan of old things and even Victorian era things. Uh Is this correct? Okay. Yes. So I just moved into a Victorian here in Chicago, built in 1891. Will you come visit me? Oh my gosh, yes. I'm going to come right now. (laughs) My dad's family is actually in Chicago. So, yeah. Brittany, come visit. We can come hang out. But I love it. Oh, what's that show? There's a show on HGTV, and she's in Chicago, and she's always flipping, like, older Um, houses. Windy City Rehab? Yes, that one. I love that show. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I think I need to start watching it. Yeah, she does does a ton of of properties like that. Yeah, so why are you such a fan of, well, Victorian specific, but just, like, the old. Like, the old. Mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting. So we have this place here in Atlanta. It's called Oakland Cemetery. And it's a Victorian era cemetery. And back then, you know, death was looked at as, you know, a social event kind of. So it's like gardens. And it's really awesome because there's a lot of really big, there's a lot of really fine sculptures. So when me and my husband go anywhere, I like to go to the cemetery, the oldest cemetery to see like, the history and I like telling the story and I think that maybe that's why I feel like I'm a good storyteller because I like listening and learning about other stories so it started out with the love for the cemetery <laughs> and then I grew up we grew up um my dad was in the Marines, so we moved around a lot and one thing I found like you know houses in the suburbs all kind of end up looking the same so I was like you know what when, when we got married, I was like, you know what? I don't want that. And I went on a, a tour of homes, like in various neighborhoods of Atlanta. And I was like, Ooh, yeah. Like, look at that. Like people don't make stuff like this anymore. Right. Uh, Or like our house, like you will not find our house, the same house up the street, unless the same builder, you know, happened to build it. It's going to be similar, but due to the time period, you know, 1911, um, you're not going to have the same things as the other one, because there was no mass production in the house. So that's why I really like it. And it's really unique. And I think it's just, it's just different. You know, people talk about the the dream is to move out of the city and buy a house in the suburbs. But, you know, we're trying to keep the, 
keep the city alive here. So we did. We bought a house right within the city, an old house. And I love it. It just has so much character. Yeah. Not that's that's not my dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, one more question. It's the question I ask everyone. So I know you listen to the podcast, so you're probably ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would mm-hmm. you rather have penises all down your back or a vagina on your forehead? <laughs> yeah, so it was funny. I was asking my husband this last week. Oh, like, so you knew it was coming. I yeah, I was like, what should I say? And then I was like, mm, I would have to say penises down my back because vaginas leak things. <laughs> <laughs> and I would not want that on my face. Just in public. So, I mean, like, in the summertime, I don't know. Yeah. Sun's out, back's out, whatever. Oof, yeah. <laughs> but you can cover it up in winter coats. <sighs> This is, we have not heard that response, and it's yeah, a good one. That's what I like, I just, I can't. The visual is just like, uh-huh. I don't know, like a scary movie, like mm-hmm. on the head. Yeah, so, I can't. Yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. Brittany, thanks once again for joining us on the podcast. Tell everyone where Thank they can you. find you. You can find me mainly on Instagram. That's where the most, I'm the most consistent at Bell. B-E-L-L, Bell, B-E-L-L-E, Bella, B-E-L-L-A. On Instagram, I'm also on YouTube. I'm on Twitter. And I do have a Facebook page. So all the same name. That's right. And she's also in our Facebook group. And for anyone who has not joined our Facebook group, please do so. It's called the Infertile Mafia Podcast. And uh, we also have the Infertile Mafia Bosses and Babies. Uh, for anyone who is post-fertility treatments, pregnant, adopting, surrogacy, anything like that. And, uh, of course, you can always follow us on Instagram at Infertile Mafia Podcast or send us an email to infertilemafia at gmail.com. Brittany, will you close us out? Thanks for joining the Infertile Mafia. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>